More than three years after Prince's death, a new memoir is out and shedding light on the man's life beyond the legend. It's called The Beautiful Ones, and editor Dan Pipenbring was selected by Prince to collaborate on the book. And before his death from a fentanyl overdose, Prince was able to supply handwritten pages, which served as the basis for the beginning of the book. I spoke with Pipenbring about this once-in-a-lifetime collaboration and how he was chosen to share Prince's one-of-a-kind story with the world. It was such an unlikely story. I was 29 at the time, uh, living in Brooklyn, where I still live now, and working for a literary magazine. And I'd never published a book, which uh, is usually fairly disqualifying for these sorts of opportunities. But uh, my literary agent told me that he was working with Prince on a book, and I, I begged him for the chance to be on this list of potential collaborators. And he, he obliged, but he, he made it clear that there was no chance that this job would go to me for the reasons I've just described, uh, among others. And as it turned out, uh, he was wrong. Um, Prince was looking for someone who had never written a book before. He wanted someone untested with, without hardened ideas about what a memoir should or could do. Uh, someone almost radically open-minded, I guess, and, and he, of course, always loved working with young people, uh, and he loved to kind of pluck talent from obscurity. So to uh, my great surprise and great fortune, he, he kept me on a short list of potential collaborators and had me write a personal statement about him, and I submitted that the same day it was requested of me, and 48 hours later, I was on my way to meet him at, at Paisley Park. And that was how it all started. You know, the the introduction, the opening pages of the book, it almost is, it's almost like a suspense thriller. And it, that was one of the things that, that I, I was so invested in as I was reading it. As a fan, uh, you kind of can put yourself in your shoes, which is, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. How intimidating was it when you first met him? Oh, it was Extremely intimidating. I, I was so nervous. I remember it was January in, in Minneapolis at the time, so quite cold, as you know. And, and even in the best of times, I have kind of poor circulation. And I remember being in the car with this driver and realizing that my hands were freezing. I just I couldn't warm them up to save my life. And I was kind of sitting on them trying to warm them up because I knew that I was soon going to have to shake his hand and that this would be a pivotal moment. I wanted to convey uh, complete comfort and authority. And, uh, of course, I, I'll never know what his first impressions of me were, but from what I remember, uh, I was a mess. I was just so nervous and not at all in control of myself. Um, Prince can be very intimidating. He has uh, a kind of imperiousness about him. He can convey so much with his eyes, and he does seem to be kind of appraising you, uh, and he's very self-aware and very observant. Fortunately, he was also extremely generous and charitable and solicitous and, and clearly very accustomed to putting people at ease. I think he knew the effect he had uh, on anyone who came across him. And so when I met him that day at Paisley Park, uh, he took pains to, to make me feel at home there. He really welcomed me. And we ended up talking for 90 minutes in his conference room. I remember being struck by the silence of Paisley Park, by the degree to which it felt like a, a sanctuary, a very private place for him. And I realized that as much as I'd listened to him over the years, I'd almost always heard him framed by music or 
by the pageantry of his performances. So uh, his soft-spokenness really came through in, in the quiet of that room. And the more we talked, the, the more at ease I felt. And you somehow got from that point to eventually having him drive you around, which I was also, it's a small thing, but I was fascinated by. What, what's it like being driven around by Prince? It's remarkable, and, and I was really fascinated by it, too. I, I think that speaks to uh, what a generous host he is, in a way. His driver, at the end of our first conversation, uh, was otherwise engaged because there was a show at Paisley Park that night, so she was busy taking people to and from the venue. And Prince said, well, no matter, I'll just drive you myself. And so we got in the elevator at Paisley Park, uh, and he took me into his garage, and we got in his Lincoln MKT, and he drove me the short distance back to my hotel in Shanhattan. And he was just a very alert, uh, authoritative driver. I remember thinking, like, oh, he, he turned signals so well. But then... I started to chastise myself for that because so much of what we talked about was how he wanted to to broadcast or convey his humanity. You know, he worried that uh, he had become such a mysterious figure that maybe people forgot that he really was a man and that he came from somewhere. He came from Minneapolis. And, of course, he would be a good driver because he was good at almost everything he did, and he was careful and conscientious. So... Uh, once I got over the initial shock of it, I, I tried not to, to make too much of it. But it was such a kind thing for someone like him to do, to take time out like that and, and just drive me back. It, it was very humbling. You talked a little bit about what some of Prince's goals were in writing the book or in starting the process. But also reading it, he talks about... Uh, and I'm hoping you can shed a little bit of light on this, but he talks about using the book as a way to, to shed light on racism, or he puts it in a, in a different way, which I found kind of interesting. Tell me a little bit about w what his intention was with that, as, as far as you uh, interpret it. Yeah, I, I think as he went along and began to write about his own past, his own life, he saw that more than just a story or an autobiography, the book could have an inspirational backbone, that it could be something that would function, in his words, as a handbook for uh, a beautiful community of creators who, like him, were not going to take their marching orders from anyone, who would insist on total autonomy and who would resist, I think, the the more predatory urges of the music industry to, to package them or to brand them as a certain kind of artist. He, he felt very strongly that uh, creatives, especially African-American creatives, were, were too often mistreated and exploited by the hands of the music industry. He, he had witnessed that firsthand, of course. And if he could make his book a kind of clarion call for a form of community that would kept what it makes that would always own its own masters, run its own schools, even have its own police force. And I think he saw that, that his own story could serve as the beginning of a blueprint for a, a different kind of society. Uh, it was a grand ambition and a really beautiful one. You know, it's been talked about quite a bit what a seemingly mysterious kind of person he was. So I'm curious, at any point in the process, did you have anxiety 
about him actually revealing himself in this process or maybe even changing his mind about opening himself up to the process? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I think there was always a chance that he would change his mind. In fact, as part of the contract for the book with Random House, he had stipulated that he would be allowed to remove the book from shelves at any time in the future if he felt it no longer reflected who he was. So he was very aware of someone who, very aware of himself as someone who changed his mind a lot uh, and who was always evolving and, and, and shifting his viewpoints on things. Uh, that was something he really liked about himself. So I did worry that, that maybe the collaboration would never come to its fruition or that he would be too reticent uh, when it came to certain facts or stories from his past. That was something that was always on my mind because his mystery was forever intact. Uh, I, I think even if he had wanted to dispel it fully, which he didn't, um, he wouldn't have been able to. He was, it was too innate to him, you know. So I, I did worry, but fortunately what he wrote about in the pages that he did finish for the book uh, had such a, a candor and frankness to it that uh, I, I think my, my fears were misplaced in a lot of ways. He didn't seem to care too much for the word magic or magical. Can you uh, elaborate on that? Why do you think that was? Yes, yeah, he had very strict ideas about diction and words generally. He was very careful with language, very precise. Uh, and I think he, we talked so much about his mother and his father, and you can almost see the evidence of that in his fixation on language because he wanted to be very disciplined in his use of it, uh, which was something that you can almost see his father saying. He wanted to master the English language and know how to deploy it with full eloquence. But then if, if ever he felt that there was a word that didn't exist, he would be happy to make it up. If, if language couldn't accommodate him, in other words, he would just invent a new language. And that's something like the spontaneity you see from his mother. And in the case of the word magic, uh, I think he felt that it ignored the work, the labor that he had put into making his music and making his career. Uh, he thought that when people described him as magical, they were ignoring the reality of funk, which is that it's a very earthy thing, that it's the product of a lot of efforts and intention, and that there's no real sleight of hand to it. It's, it's something that requires sitting down and, and paying close and careful attention and, and practice. So he resisted magic for that reason. He also felt, I think, that it conjured uh, Michael Jackson more than it conjured him, that uh, a word like magic belonged more in, in Jackson's orbit. Uh, and, of course, when you think about a place like Neverland Ranch, which had uh, you know a carousel on it and had a, a kind of theme park vibe, and you compare it to Paisley Park, which was a place of work, a place with record studios, a place that ran a record label at one point and had a soundstage, you can kind of see what he means. Uh, Paisley Park was not a place dedicated to magic. It was dedicated to music and to work. So I think that's part of what he was getting at there. Dan, you were in touch with Prince shortly before he passed away, and you talk in the book about being very shocked at his death. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, obviously you had been in touch with him close to the end there. Uh, tell me what was going through your mind when you found out that he'd passed away. 
uh, I was shattered and, and I was utterly blindsided by by the reality of it. I remember I was on a train at the time. I was on a commuter train, Metro North, uh, in Connecticut, and uh, it was such a claustrophobic train car that to to pair that with this sudden reality of his death was almost unbearable. I just wanted to get off it as soon as I could, especially because no one around me seemed to be reacting in, in this way. I remember looking at TMZ, which I think was the first to report it, and at first they, they didn't say that it was Prince who had died. They only reported a fatality at Paisley Park. And that word fatality in that setting, Paisley, which was such an intimate sanctuary of a place, it felt utterly incongruous to me. I, I could not wrap my mind around the fact that uh, a fatality would visit such a place as that, which felt so so life-giving and nourishing to me. Um, so I was immediately distraught and, and just kind of struggling to accept the, the truth of it. I'm curious, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about Prince throughout the process of putting the book together? Hmm. I don't know if I can point to a single one. I know that he told me at one point that there would be a lot of bombshells in the book. Uh, he was very proud of that. But it was said almost with a wink, like he describes his mother giving in his memoir pages. And of course, uh, because we didn't get too far into the book, I think those bombshells and any typical definition of the word are, are absent. But what to me function instead as bombshells are the quieter, more quotidian or ordinary moments of his boyhood. I think getting to read about his fantasy life as a boy uh, and experiencing his youth as a kind of coming-of-age novel almost uh, was really surprising to me, to, to hear him reflecting on his first kiss and his memories of his father and mother getting dressed up for a night on the town and, and how kind of hopeful and inspired he felt just watching them just prepare themselves. Uh, that was so moving to me. And then, of course, to see him retreat into his own mind as a boy and, and to imagine living in underwater caves and things like that, uh, it, it just shed so much light on all the music that would come later in his life to see how he was thinking about himself and composing himself as a child. You know, his estate has released a lot of music from The Vault, which is at Paisley Park. I'm wondering, are there writings of his that are also in a vault, and might we see future volumes of his story? Uh, yes, of course, there's there's more writing. I didn't see anything uh, as strictly autobiographical as the pages in this book. Uh, I think that was a mode that he really only embraced in these last months. So there was nothing so direct or diaristic that I encountered anyway, but there's a vast amount of material. Of course, there's always more lyrics. He was a huge believer in writing out his lyrics uh, in an almost iterative way. He would write them down over and over again and hone them over successive drafts. So there's always more lyrics, and there's always more kind of vignettes and story ideas, music video ideas. I, I do think he wrote very naturally with a, a very elegant style, and uh, there, there's definitely more to discover there. Prince, The Beautiful Ones, is available everywhere books are sold. Thanks again to my guest, book editor and Prince collaborator, Dan Pipenbring. Minnesota Matters returns after this.